Hello again, and welcome to Global Exchange, part of the Canadian Global Affairs Institute's podcast network. I'm your host, Colin Robertson. On this episode, we talk about Canada's new Indo-Pacific strategy with Stuart Beck, Jean Charest, Jonathan Freed, and Frank McKenna. Stuart and Jonathan are CGAI fellows and former Canadian diplomats. Stuart was our Consul General in Shanghai and San Francisco and High Commissioner to India. Jonathan was our Ambassador to Japan and the World Trade Organization. CJI Advisory Council member, the Honorable Jean Charest served as a Federal Minister, then Deputy Prime Minister, and then as Premier of Quebec. He is Chair of the Canada ASEAN Business Council. The Honorable Frank McKenna served as Premier of New Brunswick and Canadian Ambassador to the United States. He is a member of the Foreign, of Foreign Minister Jolie's Indo-Pacific Advisory Council. Welcome all. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you. Colin. Thank you, Colin. Some context for listeners. After years in development, government ministers, led by Foreign Minister Melanie Jolie, recently announced Canada's Indo-Pacific strategy. A, quote, whole of society, unquote, effort. It is geographic, with sections addressing China, India, the North Pacific, and ASEAN, and thematic, addressing trade and investment, defense and security, sustainability, people-to-people -people ties, including migration and education. China is named as a, quote, increasingly disruptive global power. That said, the government will work with China on, quote, existential pressures, including climate change and biodiversity, health and nuclear proliferation. The strategy has five objectives, promote peace and security, expand trade and investment, connect people, build a sustainable future, turn Canada into an active, engaged regional power and partner. Maybe not a power, but certainly a partner to begin with. The objectives are backed with funding, $2.3 billion in mostly new funding over five years. The biggest chunk, 750 million, is for FinDev Canada, Canada's development finance institution. Another half a billion dollars will expand Canada's naval presence and participation in regional military exercises. Global Affairs Canada gets $100 million to expand capacity at home and abroad and establish as a yet unnamed new special envoy for the Indo-Pacific. So let's get started with your main takeaways. What stands out and is anything missing? And I'm going to start with Stuart and then move to John, Jean, and then Frank. So Stuart, please. Well, thanks so much, Colin, for, uh, for asking me to be part of this. And it's great to see and or great to hear uh, former friends and fellows uh, on, this, uh, on this podcast. Well, first and foremost, Colin, the fact that we have a strategy, I think is really important. The Asia Pacific, Indo-Pacific region is really critical for Canada's future. Uh, it's where the growth is going to be. And understanding how we approach it is uh, is going to be really top of mind. Uh, certainly, China uh, is something is a an economy and a country we have to deal with, but it's one that is really uh, it flexing its muscles and and making itself felt in ways that we've never really appreciated before. So, uh, understanding how we deal with that in the context of a much larger Indo-Pacific strategy is is critical. So, from that perspective, that's a that's a very good takeaway. Um, I think on the defense and security side. Uh, it, it, for me, it, a lot has to be seen uh, in that particular space because we don't really have, in terms of force projection, I think it's, it's a lot of what we see in the, in the uh, Indo-Pacific policy is um, symbolic. Uh, it's important that we are, you know, we are there and we have our partners uh, back in many ways. Um, but ultimately, at the end of the day, I think what's important in that strategy, and, and I don't know if it really comes out that, that strongly, but certainly from somebody who'd been in India in the past, Seeing money for training and partnership training, I think, is critical. I'd love to see some money in there for Canadian forces participating, force members participating in defense colleges in the region that are important to us, such as India. And uh, that, I think, will be critical. It's, it's not the cheapest thing, but it's also quite effective in terms of building our networks. So that's going to be critical. So there's a lot that's there. I mean, it's, it's quite comprehensive, uh, and I think it's really important that we have it. Stuart, you've underlined the defense and security side of it in particular, and is that sort of the entree that is expected now in the Indo-Pacific? Well, I think, I think, you know, we've always been there in, in spirit, but not necessarily when it comes to, uh, to concrete investments in, in military hardware. Uh, and I, again, that's, you know, we, we have been such an Atlantic nation for so long. Our investments have been in NATO, it have been in 
and really in the Atlantic region, it's our history is there. So understanding how we participate in the Indo-Pacific, I think is really, uh, you know, it's something that's gonna take some time to develop. And when you take a look at what we have in terms of force projection in the region, right now we only have uh, five assets on the West Coast of which three are, de are deployable at any point in time, two are in dry dock. So again, it's, it's symbolic. I think it's important to have uh, more presence in the region from a hardware perspective that allows us to participate in ex exercises. And, and, in, and when you think about the North Pacific in particular, it's critical because that's really our backyard in many ways. So when it comes to uh, joint exercises with the Japanese and the Koreans and the Americans of the North Pacific, I think it's quite, quite critical. But first projecting into the uh, Indian Ocean will become much more difficult for us. And by assets, Stuart, you're meaning our frigates and our submarines. Our, our assets, frigates, submarines, and I, I guess at some point in time, we'll have a new uh, oiler uh, support supply ship as well that will, as be, yes. yeah, that will be deployed into the region. And our hope is, and, and one of the things that I've mentioned before is that I, I really believe the Arctic should be part of the Indo-Pacific strategy in many ways because of China and India's interest in the Arctic and the Polar Silk Road, which will be, uh, you know, as climate change becomes a reality more so than it is today, then this will be a part of the world that's very, very important to us and how we manage that from a, And, and there certainly an is reference like, to the Arctic, but yeah. as you say, it's not fleshed out. John, let me turn to you. One thing that the Japanese ambassadors here, of success, successive ambassadors have all said to me is, is the, the importance of contribution on the security and defense side. But Japan is also, I think our, what, our fourth largest trading partner and our biggest investor in Canada from an Asian country. It, it gets lumped into the North Pacific. I kind of wondered if it should be on its own. You are our ambassador there. What do you think? Well, let me take a step back first, because I think on the positive side, what the strategy does is connect the dots in a way that we really haven't done before. This is more than a global affairs document. It is a government-wide document and it explains, I think, in understandable terms, the connections between defense and security on the one hand, uh, economic stability and prosperity, and the imperative in a region that's quite heterogeneous, the imperative of sustainable uh, development. And they all uh, relate to each other. So in thematic terms, I think there's some coherence there. And remember, that four ministers have, as part of their mandate, shared responsibility, including foreign affairs, trade, development, and, and defense. On the defense and security side, before turning to Japan and the economy, uh, let me put more emphasis on the security side, because in terms of threats to our sovereignty and well-being, as we read about publicity of interference in our domestic affairs and so on. Intelligence is just as important as hardware and defense. It happens to be an area of comparative advantage for Canada. What we bring to the table as value added includes our intelligence, cyber, and uh, related capacities. You can't be too explicit in a public document about that, but it is I think implicit uh, that this is part of a more meaningful contribution to our shared and, and collective security. Um, on the economy, there's a right and wrong to the way it's framed. Japan, in terms of uh, being the world's third largest economy, the fourth largest trading partner, major investor in Canada, and a great innovator uh, even though they're very modest about it, is a fundamentally important uh, partner for Canada. We are building on some success because in recent years, we've developed a six-point action plan that's full of meat. Uh, uh, but it is natural in today's world, as we watch the evolution of the dynamic uh, among uh, friends and allies, to consider that uh, the North Pacific, as you've emphasized, Colin, is a shared responsibility of Japan and Korea, along with their friends uh, from beyond uh, the region. So there's absolutely nothing wrong with considering how, despite the inherent tensions in the Japan-Korea relationship, 
to make our own contribution to fostering a more collaborative uh, approach. But that brings another point to bear, whether on defense or on uh, trade uh, or on development. To, to earn our place requires mutual confidence with our friends and partners on the other side of the Pacific. Uh, certainly, Prima Charest has uh, invested a lot of time and energy into developing and sustaining relationships. And that message is, in effect, that uh, to have an impact means having relationships and earning the confidence and trust of our partners. And that means Canada's engagement has to be sustained and not episodic. So having given credit to the strategy, uh, on the one hand, as a statement of ambition and intention, the real test will be in its execution and delivery. And the real test, therefore, is whether the government follows through on uh, this statement of intent by sustaining that engagement. And that's not just the uh, photo ops of uh, leaders' visits, uh, but rather ongoing engagement at all levels among experts uh, in different sectors uh, and so on. So money is notionally allocated, but not with the granularity one would need to actually measure uh, in concrete terms uh, how we're progressing and going to be implementing. In effect, this needs to be accompanied in the coming months and years with in effect, KPIs. What are you measuring as a success as you go along and are you following, uh, following through? Uh, Japan is a ready and willing uh, partner. Uh, we've not had a, a major ministerial level or prime ministerial level visit uh, to Japan in recent years. Uh, it's overdue. The G7 is being hosted and chaired by Japan in the coming year in 2023. That provides a good springboard to extend uh, our, uh, our conversations, I think, in, uh, in a deeper way. I won't take up too much more time. I'll respond to your Okay, well, th thanks, John. We go. John, uh, Jonathan makes the point about engagement, which is something I've certainly observed that both you and Frank have always uh, you don't sit in your office, you get out and see people. And certainly I saw that with you in the United States. And I know that the, you get out to Asia for a bit, if only not, not just because of business, but because you have family links out there as well now. And uh, what, what, what is your sense in terms, you know, Jonathan makes the point about engagement at the top. And I think that's correct, particularly important in Asia. And you and Frank, both having served as premiers, will appreciate that 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 those political relationships, I think, are particularly important in, in the Indo-Pacific, but I'd be interested in your perspective. Uh, and thank you, Colin, again, for inviting me. And uh, interestingly enough, when I met Stuart, he was High Commissioner in, uh, in Delhi. And uh, when I met Jonathan, he was our ambassador in Japan, hosted me as Premier, and uh, I remember it very fondly because of the excellent work both of them were doing on the ground. And you're, you're raising just to address that issue. I mean, one of the, to be very direct about it, Canada in the Indo-Pacific has had uh, a checkered record of presence and of a sustained presence in the region. And it varies. I mean, Japan obviously is a very important economic partner and is in a category by itself and a member of the G7. And, uh, but if you, and I'm the you know, honorary chair of the ASEAN Business Council, as you mentioned, it's very uneven within the ASEAN and often too often call and it depends on the minister of trade it depends and it's off and on and this strategy addresses that I thought it was pretty straightforward in its language in addressing it and saying we have to be more consistent we have to be have a stronger presence and then it speaks to areas in which we have not had a stronger presence like security where you know obviously it's not as though we have a lot of hardware to offer but we do have things to offer I thought the remark about intelligence is, is right on. And, uh, and uh, our presence as a partner is valued. I mean, that, that's significant. I want to return to something very fundamental, though. And ironically, a lot of us were asking and hoping for this strategy for a long time. 
but actually the timing probably works better having just been announced given all the moving parts of what is happening in the world now, especially in the United States and their relationship with China and uh, in particular and the Indo-Pacific and Europe. The first thing I always like to remind myself of, this is a, China itself is a superpower and it's a superpower now. And there should be a book written about the unwritten rules of how to deal with a superpower because, and Canada is very familiar with that. The United States is our friend, our neighbor and ally. You love them dearly, but they're a superpower and they behave a certain way. They have their own impulses. And China certainly falls within that category and we're having to deal with that. And, uh, and so that, that's something we need to acknowledge as we go ahead on how we, how we manage that relationship. Now, put it in the context now of what's happening in the United States vis-a-vis -vis China and even Europe, uh, Ukraine and, and the world. And we're clearly moving towards a world in which there is going to be on certain areas a, a so-called decoupling of economic activity. I'm thinking of everything that has to do with national security, whether it's strategic minerals, 5G, whether it's quantitative, uh, uh, you know, whether it's uh, computing, whether it's, uh, it's semiconductors. Uh, we're moving into a world where there's going to be this preoccupation of not uh, allowing our intelligence and for national security reasons to protect ourselves. And then there's things like, uh, you know, uh, medical equipment, things like that. We've learned from COVID and the breakdown of supply chains, how we have to have more autonomy and how we're reconfiguring our supply chains in certain ways in a slow manner, by the way, it's not going to happen overnight to assure that national security. In the case of Canada, interestingly enough with China, there's another aspect to it. I mean, there's this implicit sense that we're gonna to continue to export things that are natural resources, iron ore and canola and uh, export beef and pork. And, and that's true in other parts of, uh, of Asia also. And so that we have to rethink that relationship, but we're doing it with our partners and we have to be in lockstep with what they're doing. My main concern, Colin, has been we need to identify what is our core interest and be able to separate that from other countries. I'm not saying we should not take that into account, what the Americans do. We have to, but we have to identify what is our core interest and leave our mark in that relationship. And there's a lot of soft power out there for us. And with the Indo-Pacific vision now of including India, which is a complicated partner to deal with, Stuart can tell us a lot about that. I've, I've been there. It is. I mean, it's a tough country <laughs> on the trade side. But there's a whole ASEAN. We're now negotiating a trade agreement with ASEAN. We're negotiating with Indonesia. We're part of CPTPP. Four ASEAN countries are part of that also. There's RCEP that's out there. Uh, we're not part of it, but that is part of the new trade framework that is being redefined. Uh, Joe Biden announced his new uh, economic uh, framework also uh, relative to China, to, to Asia, and we're not part of it. We weren't invited to that party. So there's areas where we have to get into the game, but I'm just delighted to see that we've structured it are thinking about it and now we're going to have a platform from which to work with and to uh, and to be able to manifest that presence thank you but john just before i leave you you talked about the you know core interest it's, it's certainly my impression over the previous years that our core interest has been trade and investment we appreciate the importance now of security and defense if only because all the partners out there remind us of that uh, there's also of course the people to people ties but at the heart what we want to do because it is fastest growing part of the world is do more trade. And then you appreciate that. Is that when you say core interest, and I realize they vary from country to country, but would that be what you would put at your top of your list, the, the, the trade and investment side? Naturally so. Core interest is, is on the top of the list, but I also in, include people to people ties. You know, the strategy rightfully points out that the most important ethnic group within Canada of Canadians are of uh, Chinese origin and Asian origin. I think it's one per person almost in five or six. Uh, the uh, people to people tie includes issues uh, where uh, we include climate change, for example, or, or, or health care or health issues and pandemics. Those are areas in which we, we have a lot of opportunities of working together with uh, 
uh, with China. And, uh, and I, I would like to see us on those matters also expand the relationship and give it a frame and, uh, and be very deliberate in the way we approach all of Indo-Pacific, not just China, but all of Indo-Pacific. Frank, all of us have served on advisory committees and councils and, uh, and the underlining is advisory. Our advice is not always taken. Um, did you feel that you were heard and that uh, the advisory council had a sort of meaningful contribution to the outcome of the policy? Well, that's interesting, Colin. I've served on a lot of advisory councils and I never really felt that we were heard. I thought we were window dressing, <laughs> uh, being honest with you. But in this case, I actually thought that the advisory council uh, was useful and was listened to. And I've never been involved in a, an exercise where we were kept so well informed uh, in the execution of the plan, the communications of the plan. Um, so, uh, so yeah, uh, it, that, it turned out to be a good exercise. Um, I'm just going to answer one or two questions that you haven't asked. Uh, that's all right. The first, uh, the first one would be why, and uh, you know, it's the classic uh, uh, Canadian, particularly uh, answer. Um, Indo-Pacific is where the puck is going, uh, quite frankly, and it's going there very uh, quickly. Um, by 2030, it's going to be home to two-thirds of the global middle class. Uh, by 2040, it'll have 50% of world's GDP, 4 billion people, 47 trillion economic activity. Pretty incredible. And then, of course, on the Canadian side, nearly 20% of new Canadians and 60% of international students come from the region. I was at a meeting uh, yesterday that you'd recognize Colin Brookfield, and we were told, and I, I couldn't believe it, uh, but I wrote it down. We were, I'm told that 30, over 30% 30 of our workforce are Asian. Um, it just seemed incredible, but that's the world that we live in. And one country that interests me alone, uh, India, is going to be the world's most populous by 2027, which is not far away. Uh, by 2030, it's going to be the world's third largest economy. It's home to the largest working age population in the world, half the population under age 25. So all of those are reasons why. And, and then I'll close off by just saying that uh, uh, not only did I find the minister really uh, use the advisory board effectively, I think she did an extraordinary job of bringing whole of government together. Um, $2.3 billion is not shabby, uh, so it's serious money uh, that she was able to uh, wrestle, and my colleagues on the call would, would know how difficult that is. And she was able to keep um, whole of government uh, in the room in terms of uh, the announcement of the strategy and the execution of the strategy. And in fact, there were, I don't know, half a dozen ministers at the announcement. I thought was a bit of a triumph as well. So I think it, I think um, other, other speakers here are more knowledgeable than I am on the region have all said it well, uh, that uh, um, it, was a, it was a policy that needed to be done. Uh, it's like most things in life is probably not perfect, uh, but it represented in my view, a really strong effort to uh, define the relationship. No, I think that's right. And, and Stuart and Jonathan can correct me, but I think it's the most detailed uh, foreign policy description that we've seen from this government and it's almost seven years now. Is, is that not fair, Stuart and Jonathan? Well, it's the first one in a long time, Colin, I have to say. It's, uh, I, I can't remember, I think Jonathan was involved in the last time we tried to do a foreign policy review and that was back in the early, two, the early 2000s. I guess 2003, 2004, if I remember correctly, Jonathan. It was. It was. Uh, it began in 2003 and made an appearance in 2004. So you're quite right. Yeah. Oh well, this this was a major undertaking, and and now we have, as Frank says, we've got a policy going forward. And certainly, the numbers that you have uh, uh, underlined, Frank, remind us of the importance of the Indo-Pacific. By definition, of course, I think it is highly readable, but it is purposely general. It makes no reference to LNG or for that matter, beef and pork or pulse and canola, all of which are key exports to the region. Uh, while it implicitly promises to increase Canadian trade, it does not set out measurable metrics. Um, do we need these kind of metrics in the next iteration? And I, I'm gonna start with you, uh, uh, Frank and Jean, because as, as uh, politicians, it, it's always struck me that when you have a metric, then you've got something to hold the civil servants uh, feet to the fire on. And from a political perspective, the public understands, okay, we're gonna try and 
increase our trade by X amount or double our trade. And as you point out, Frank, again, with the metrics, and Jean, you certainly appreciate, this is a region of the world where we could be doing a lot more. And again, I, that's certainly one of the driving forces of this, uh, of this policy. So Frank, why don't you start off? My question is, do we need metrics? Well, yeah, I don't think this document was necessarily the place for that. You pointed that out. Um, by almost by definition, any metric would have to be general in nature. Um, it would be hard to say how many uh, how many tons of barley we should be shipping to Asia, how many lobster we should be shipping. But uh, there probably should be some macro uh, some macro measurements that we can measure success against. Uh, uh, the degree to which we've uh, increased our our uh, economic relationship with countries in the region uh, that, that would probably be helpful. Uh, there is a saying, of course, that you can't manage what you can't measure, but you don't measure, so that would be helpful. Um, but there, there's also a lot of uh, I wouldn't call it soft. It's not soft, but it, it's it's more it, less tangible uh, activity taking place. We we have the I'd say the largest, if not the largest close to participation of what we call sponsors, pension funds, asset managers in the region. Uh, in India alone, uh, 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 we have several Canadian uh, uh, funds that are probably the largest foreign uh, uh, contributors to their economy. Um, and that's true throughout, uh, throughout uh, the Indo-Pacific. We probably have uh, several trillion dollars uh, of firepower um, aimed at them, not all of it uh, is, uh, uh, is being deployed, but uh, you know, we would own airports and we would own toll roads and we own, uh, we, we, we own uh, uh, parts of the telecommunications infrastructure. The, uh, so it's hard to measure uh, in a, any serious way how, um, what, what that contribution is, but I can tell you it's vast. Uh, we, would, we would own a good part of the backbone uh, Canadian uh, funds would own a good part of the backbone of the Indo-Pacific. Which is not always appreciated. John, the question I put to you is, um, and you know, Frank come in on this as well, is that this is described purposely as a whole of society approach, but uh, the federal government has taken the lead in this. But for me, and certainly my experience in the United States was the success of any trade relationship, the federal government often sets the framework think of the Canada, US, the NAFTA, the FTA, but it's often the, the provincial governments and provincial ministers, provincial premiers who are the drivers on this because they're often the closest to it. So I'd be interested in your perspective on the role that for this to be successful, the provinces are going to have to play. Well, and, and when the federal government has been successful in, uh, in pursuing foreign policy objectives of this nature, they've always had the reflex of bringing on board, uh, calling the uh, highest number of, of partners, uh, starting with the provinces, reminding everyone that we are one of the most decentralized federations in the world. And the provinces have extraordinary powers and resources and they control them. So it's the, it's the good thing to do. Um, you know, you're very familiar with the United States. You were active in that part of the, and in that relationship when we renegotiated Kuzma, it was an all, all hands on deck approach. That's when Canada successful. And by the way, including opposition parties, Canada really gets it right when we avoid, you know, uh, useless debate among opposition parties on what is foreign policy. Frank raises something very interesting though. Part of Canada's new branding in the last 10 years in the world is our pension funds. Our pension funds, if you take our 10 biggest pension funds together, Colin, we are the most important investors in infrastructure in the world. We're also the most important investors in renewable energy in the world. And, and that includes, you know, what is the public, quasi-public, but also Brookfield, which Frank is very familiar with. It's in every part of the planet. This is really, and this is a part of the planet that badly and urgently needs infrastructure to be able to develop. This represents for us an extraordinary opportunity. Our pension funds actually give social license to projects. You know, if you have the branding of Brookfield and you're doing a project in the Emirates, uh, you know, you will be perceived as being a reliable, trustworthy, competent partner. Same is true for the case of the poor CPPIB. So I'll just leave you with one thought. It'd be very interesting. You talk of markers 
and whether we should not, you know, set objectives. It'd be interesting to see what percentage of investment the pension funds want to dedicate to Asia. You'll remember that Mark Machen, when he was at CPPIB, I think he wanted to de dedicate 26% of his depositors' monies to Asia in that part of the world. And the American pension funds in this geopolitical context seem to want to withdraw for political reasons. Here's a good area for Canada to brand itself, play an extremely useful role, and do it in a way that is going to benefit uh, Canadian contributors to our pension funds. Stuart, both Frank and John have made the point that we've got perhaps assets that we have not fully appreciated, particularly pension funds, big companies like Brookfield. Uh, you were in India. Is, is that your sense as well, that we actually have a lot more to bring to the table that then we perhaps at first blush appreciate? Well, uh, when I arrived in India back in 2010, Colin, you know, we've, we've had a number of issues that have impacted our relationship. Uh, coming out of uh, India's independence back in the in 47, Canada was looked as a colonial cousin. And we had a tremendous relationship between our prime minister and the prime minister of India at the time. And uh, if you take a look at the Indian constitution, it's very, very similar to the Canadian constitution. They call it states, we call it provinces, but it's, it's a true federation, very similar to Canada. And that we've had problems over the years, particularly around nuclear as one of the big issues. And then some other issues around uh, uh, Khalistani separatism, which have impacted the relationship. So when I arrived in India, it was a kind of a cool time for us. And I had time to think about and reflect. And if we wanted to be relevant to India, we had to kind of understand what, what that would be. And we chose really four areas to try and improve that relevance. One was around food security, and we worked on energy security, and that includes some of the nuclear side of things. The third was in infrastructure, but not building infrastructure. We had done that during the time we had an aid program in, in India, but it was around the financing. And in fact, the respect for the Canadian uh, pension funds in particular, but also Brookfield, uh, Frank. I mean, Brookfield was a big player even before the pension funds came into the Indian market. Uh, that was one area that really was relevant. It was so relevant, in fact, that when the finance minister came to visit Canada, a meeting was, was held between him and the six uh, CEOs of the big pension funds in Canada. We were able to say, look, you're not going to get pension fund investment in India unless you make some fundamental changes in the financial regulatory environment. And the, and the finance minister at the time said, okay, you do us a white paper. And we did a white paper. Again, goes back to one of the areas of, of Canadian strengths, which is re the regulatory governance environment. And they took that, that white paper and they spent a week in India going over it and making some fundamental changes to which would make it more attractive for the Canadian pension funds to invest. So when it comes to brand relevance, uh, Colin, the Canadian pension plans play a very, very big role. Uh, and I, can, I, I would venture to say that uh, if a Canadian pension plan CEO from one of the big ones, CDB, CDBQ, CPPIB, OMERS, teachers, were to go to Delhi, the likelihood of him maybe meeting him or her, or her meeting with Mr. Modi, or Prime Minister Modi, is pretty high because he understands the importance of that investment environment. So yes, we have a lot to offer in the context of India. The second thing that, or the fourth area that was important and still is very important from an India-Canada perspective is technology and how we can use our technology in areas that are important around food security, ag tech, for, uh, and also in climate change and, and, um, and renewable area. That's, that's quite important. And then the final thing that really plays well for us in the context of India right now, and this is something that we have to be very careful with, okay, quite frankly, is the fact that we are attracting a lot of very talented young Indian students to come to Canada to go to school. And that can be sometimes a double-edged sword, okay? And we have to be very careful how those students, because there's so many of them now, it, it, is, it, it does create some problems. There have been articles in the paper and there's some other issues that have been coming up. So it, it, we can't look at the Indian students simply as a means to generate financial revenue in the context of educational institutions. And so that, it needs to be a balance between that and then being able to make sure that if we are gonna have a pathway to citizenship for these, for these students, that that pathway is a smooth and well-managed pathway to citizenship. So those are the things that I think are really important in the context of India. Jonathan, I, my question was originally about- I wonder, Please. I wonder if you'll let me uh, chime in because 
in talking about infrastructure and our comparative advantage, again, take a step back. Even if trade, investment, and profit are prime, that's only going to succeed if you're doing business in societies and in countries whose domestic environment is stable and at peace. And if you've got internal conflict and if you've got exclusion of minorities or red shirts versus yellow shirts in Thailand or separatists in the Philippines, you're not going to have a very hospitable business environment. So the development dimension remains important, including, and it comes through in the strategy, uh, an overarching emphasis on inclusion, number one. And number two, the um, basic infrastructure that's needed is so, uh, so far beyond the current capacity. The estimates are about a trillion dollars a year uh, for the region over the next 10 to 20 years. Canada alone is not going to do that. Belt and Road is trying to do that, and the West is stumbling towards a coordinated approach to pool the resources from both public and private sources for everything from connectivity to energy infrastructure to transportation infrastructure and so on. We need at home, and the strategy points to this, although FinDev is only one of the actors, we need better, more consolidated coordination, uh, both through our, our public funding agencies, be it EDC, BDC, uh, and so on, and the private sector actors in the name of blended financing and only by marshalling and pooling those resources, both within Canada and with our friends and allies, do we offer a credible and frankly more sustainable alternative to what the Chinese have been doing uh, with very mixed uh, success and failures along the way through their Belt and Road Initiative? So put infrastructure and the Canadian advantage into that broader uh, context. You know, Frank makes the case that we have big business interests sometimes that we don't always appreciate their pension funds and the rest. My question, and I'm going to ask you to lead on this one, Jean, uh, for this to succeed, business uh, will have to buy into this because it's business that does business. So my question is, and in part wearing your cap in the Canada Asian Business Council, will business buy into this strategy, Jean? I, I believe they will certainly buy into the strategy. I think the business community welcomes it, applauds it, and uh, is delighted to have a structure and a vision that they can hang their hat on. Uh, in ASEAN, uh, I think we should lead in the areas where we have strength. We've already talked about the pension funds, but the financial sector is an area where Canada has a long record of a presence and success. Manulife, uh, you know, is, is in the area and has been there uh, for years, Sun Life, also all very successful. Now, think of that, think of the growth of the private sector. You know, uh, one of the major think tanks uh, a few years ago said that one of the most, the most significant thing that has happened since the creation of capitalism, nothing less, is the emergence of this new middle class, which it is phenomenal. And it was driven by trade. You know, it started in the 80s all the way up to 07, 08 until the Great Recession. But let's, let's not forget that the growth in trade was higher and more important than the growth in world GDP over those years and was a great locomotive of wealth creation that benefited the whole world and drew out of poverty hundreds of millions of people. I mean, from the, in the perspective of humanity, it was an extraordinarily good story. And there's a lot more to do. And so to answer your question, yes, the business community, I think is really going to applaud this. The agri-food agriculture sector in particular, because they have been vulnerable to whole sorts of political movements and decisions. And I think they want a more sustained, more structured approach that will label Canadian products and allow us to have a more consistent and more stronger presence. So there's extraordinary opportunities for us out there. Frank, with that, you know, you've talked about Brookfield, but the banks and uh, sort of other infrastructure, is this something that, you know, that the business 
wanted as well? And will it will it be helpful because it will be business? Again, I'm convinced that business does business. Yeah, I firmly believe that. I look. Let's be honest here. Some of the political uh, interactions between some of the large economies there and Canada have not been particularly productive. That's just fact. Um, on the other hand, business continues to go along as usual, and uh, uh, and it, it it is very large. Uh, um, uh, Jean mentioned uh, uh, Manulife. Manulife would be one of the bigger insurers in China. It's a massive massively large company in Asia. Sun Life is very large. Uh, we have, uh, and, and another point was made about the influence of some of our pension funds. I was talking to the CEO of one of our pension funds last week and one of the smaller ones, a couple hundred billion dollars, but one of the smaller ones. And he said, Modi pulls together uh, uh, people like him every year that he can uh, uh, see him and, and speak to him. So this may be a case where the business community, especially the really large funds who are bringing a lot of gravity uh, to their investments uh, in, in the Indo-Pacific, where they may be able to lead the political, uh, the, the, the political parties uh, uh, towards a better relationship, quite frankly. And I think, look at the, at the smallest level, uh, I, I don't know, uh, somebody who's manufacturing widgets, um, it's going to take them for a while to to look through the entrails of this strategy to find out what may, might be good for them. And it might be years down the road before uh, the increased trade officers and the in increased intensity of uh, attention in the region is good for them. But for the really big fish who are already uh, in that pond, they're going, to, uh, they're going to find this a very welcome strategy. They just want certainty. They want predictability. They want certainty. They don't want a situation like Saudi Arabia where you know one tweet uh, ends up with five years in the doghouse. They they want they want our government just to be predictable and stable and uh, and not throw hand grenades into the relationship. And that would include regular sustained ministerial visits and prime ministerial visits. Yeah, absolutely. And using the credible the the, the credible entrees that we have now. And I, we've talked enough about the pension funds, but the diaspora. My gosh, the uh, the diaspora that we have in Canada and in Asia uh, connected to Canada is a magnificent instrument for uh, uh, for doing uh, business or politics together. So we do have some great connectors. Um, earlier this week, Jonathan and I met with the political director for the European Union who had previously been the political director for Spain. And uh, Jonathan asked, I thought the most pertinent question about what we were looking, how he saw the future of China. Was China simply gonna be the sphere of influence in Asia or did China want to be the sort of celestial middle kingdom of the past and principle set the rules for the rest of the world? And his answer, I, I was kind of struck by, and that was that he, he was starting to lean more towards China as wanting to basically set the rules and the rest of us follow. Um, uh, you know, Stuart, you've watched China. Uh, what's your take on China? Because China certainly, I, I, I think, was one of the reasons why this strategy took so long to come out because it got compounded with the uh, uh, with the two Michaels and Meng Wanzhou. Well, yeah, there's a lot of sorts of complications in the relationship, but I think the point that the political director is making is, I, I think China has always seen itself that way as being the middle kingdom. Uh, they went through a period of 150, 200 years where it was sort of the doldrums for them in the, in the context of where they were from that position. So I think uh, Xi Jinping is trying to reposition China in that role, and they would love to be able to set, um, you know, set the, the table for all intents and purposes. And they felt, you know, and you know, when you live in, I mean, I lived in Taiwan and I lived in the mainland, and it's quite different in the two places. Uh, and certainly the, the Taiwan is much more Western in its orientation, but when you go to the mainland, you really begin to appreciate. There's a couple of things that really drive their thinking. Uh, one is, and you, and you see this often in the press, but they did have 150 years where, or 200 years where they were really under the thumb from a colonial perspective. And Colin, you're a, you're a student of history. So 
you know, when you read Paris, Paris, you know, Margaret uh, McMillan's book Mark on Millen's, Paris, yeah. I think, yeah. You know, just think how China was treated in that, in that context after the First World War. Okay, and there's lots of things that people remember about that, and they just basically say, Western institutions have dictated everything to us for so long. We want to be able to bring some of that back and be able to, to dictate to the rest, actually to the rest of the world. So yes, we're running into an existential threat, uh, and it's one that we're, we're really trying to cope and deal with. And it's got to be difficult. It won't be easy because they have a lot of influence in Asia. And one of the things that I, I like, I saw in the strategy, and I think all of us on the, on the, uh, in this podcast would agree, is that money is going to be invested in building Asia competence. And a large part of that is in China competence, okay? Because China has influence in all parts of the world. And we have a very good cadre of China experts within global affairs, but we need it across a broader swath of government. And in, you know, not just when we talk of global affairs, Colin, you and Jonathan, and I know that China is going to have influence in Africa. How many people in our Africa uh, desk understand China in the context of Africa? So these are types of things that we have to have to really build uh, our, our, um, our expertise. And there's money for that at the government level. Mm -hmm. I just wish, and, and Jean would know this because we both work with the Asia Pacific Foundation. Now, at the foundation, we were really pushing hard that for us to do it, you know, to be able to capitalize on what's going on in Asia, we need to build confidence at a very early age and level. And we need to build social Asia into so, social study programs at, in our, uh, across the provinces because it's provincial jurisdiction. It's hard to kind of do this in one, in one place, but the provinces have to understand that Asia, people need to understand it and kids need to understand it at an early age. No, and you've, you've made the point, and I think consistently, and it uh, makes a lot of sense, is that we should be doing more to educate young Canadians about why the Indo-Pacific matters to their own livelihood. That's right, because mm. that's, I mean, <laughs> Frank made a great, uh, you know, at the very beginning, explain why Asia is going to be so important to us, you know, mm. in the Indo-Pacific going forward. Jean, I know you have particular interests in what goes on in Hong Kong, and mm. of course, China has it's not treated Hong Kong the way we thought that the treaties that the British were uh, endorsed by the UN laid out. What's your take on China, given that, you know, I know you have particular interest in what takes place in Hong Kong. Yep. And, and I'll tell our audience why. My oldest daughter uh, lives, has been living in Hong Kong for the last 10 years. She was until recently the chair of the Canada-Hong Kong Chamber of Commerce, and she started a business there, and her husband and involved in that and doing well and and frankly they you know they've enjoyed it there and they still do and they're there now the challenge they had it was very interesting to have they that window in what's happening during covid like the rest of china it has been extremely difficult and and hong kong has has lost a lot of its expats because of the imposition and then there's the whole transition the changes from uh, its governance uh, which is more and more about central china and uh, quite evidently and that's moving at a more uh, rapid pace. The other thing to understand about where Hong Kong is in the, in the bigger picture in China is that when the handover happened in 97, I think China, Hong Kong was about 30% of the GDP of China. If you rolled it in, it's 3% now. And, and that's because China grew so much. So the, the economic importance of uh, Hong Kong is not what it was in 1997. And finally, one thing, one lesson to draw conclusion Quite clearly, for the central government in, uh, in China, the politics of Hong Kong is more important than the economic side, and uh, they they've made it they've made that extremely clear, and they are ready to pay a price economically to uh, and Xi Jinping is ready to pay a price economically to be able to affirm uh, what uh, Stuart has just described as being uh the middle uh, country and power in that in that region and so that's something that we uh, uh we should acknowledge one last word about that i'm going to say something that may sound I, I know it sounds like an exaggeration i don't think it is i think it's quite remarkable that xi jinping you know it probably is one of the individuals in the history of mankind has the most power I don't think, you know, think for a moment, have we ever witnessed a situation where a single individual is holding as much power as Xi Jinping is holding? And that, that is something that is uh, worth considering because it, that's a, a situation that is volatile. It means that uh, 
we're, as they emerge, as they are a superpower, that that's something that we have to take into account in our dealings with, uh, with not just with China, but the, the whole area, the whole Indo-Pacific area. Frank, what's your sort of risk assessment uh, of China and particularly in the, the context of the China-US relationship? You were our ambassador in the United States. Uh, I know you pay a lot of attention to what takes place down there. China certainly figures large in American foreign policy today. It strikes me that our policy is more or less, it is a Canadian made in Canada policy, but it seems in general alignment where most other Western countries, including the United States are towards in, in particular China and the Indo-Pacific. Well, it would definitely be in alignment, um, but a, a couple of factoids, I believe I'm right on this, others on the call may know better. Uh, our merchandise trade uh, with China is over $100 billion. It's very consequential. And we do more uh, business with China than all of the rest of Indo-Pac put together. So it, it, it's a very significant relationship uh, at the commercial level, even if, if it's strained at the political level. Uh, having said that, I would say that what's happening in Canada and the, and, and the US is quite similar. People are voting with their feet. And by people, I'm meaning big money. Uh, I, I talked to... Uh, uh, people who are running large funds in Canada, uh, and they're not going to make a fuss about it, but they're, they're revectoring. They're moving money to places that are more hospitable. Uh, in the United States, that's also the case. Um, uh, so we're, we're seeing, uh, we're, we're seeing uh, the commercial interests take their cue from political um, dialogue. Um, and, and, and gradually moving uh, their money elsewhere where it's less at risk. Remember, we saw what happened in Ukraine with people who had fixed assets um, when the sanctions regime came on and people look at the Taiwan situation and say, well, let's hope this never happens. But theoretically, if it does, China is going to go through this similar, if not more intense sanction regimes with all of the consequences associated with that. I would say the government of, of the United States is being pragmatic, as are we. Uh, we, uh, we acknowledge that China is being increasingly assertive. We acknowledge differences of opinion, but we also uh, acknowledge alignment of interest on a number of areas, such as climate cooperation, biodiversity, and so on. And uh, so I think, I think we're going to have to keep the, um, uh, the lines of communication open and cooperate where we can find common ground. Okay, my last question to you, and I'm gonna start with you, Jonathan, because you raised the, as the Japanese have done with us, the security and defense in the Indo-Pacific is the kind of absolutely necessary to provide that deterrent effect in order for us to do the trade. Um, unmentioned is you know, the, the Quad and, 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 and AUKUS. Should we join, or do you think that they would be welcome to join the Quad or AUKUS? Well, <clears throat> Uh, let me take issue with the question, because unlike Europe, with everything from the European Union and the OSCE alongside NATO, the architecture of the region is messy. There is no single convening forum. And what you therefore are inevitably will see unfold is variable geometry, if I can put it that way where friends and common interests will gather at different tables for different purposes. And we're already doing that. In effect, we have uh, quite a good working relationship, not only with the United States, uh, uh, but with other allies on critical materials in the name of resiliency and uh, more reliable sources of uh, supply. That might be a different set of actors and you would want to sit down together on climate and coordinated approach on that and a different table again, if you're gonna talk more sensitive security and defense. We have no need to insert ourselves in the traditional notion of if there's an organization, Canada must join it. We don't have the hardware that earns a place at the AUKUS table. The quad is in effect quad plus on various fronts because there are work programs and critical minerals is uh, one example of that where we're not excluded. Uh, it slipped by yesterday. There was a press release that Mary Ng issued yesterday confirming that all other IPEF members 
have now by consensus welcomed Canada to that table uh, as well. So we're not excluded from that uh, table. Uh, so uh, I think we're doing the right thing in choosing uh, where our core interests lie, ranging from climate and sustainability, as, as was mentioned, uh, to the joint exercises in the North Pacific that build on our continuous presence in the Korean Peninsula, uh, op neon, and going back to our role that continues as a guarantor uh, of the armistice uh, there. So uh, the long <laughs> answer is a short one. You get to the table and we're doing the right thing. I don't think we're being excluded at, from tables where, where we do have value added to bring to bear. Okay. Jonathan, thank you. Stuart, would you concur with Jonathan? Uh, I, I often, I, I never disagree with Jonathan. Jonathan always <laughs> puts things so, so eloquently. I, I would just say that um, one of the advantages we have in places like China, or we did in China, uh, not so much anymore, but certainly in India, is we don't go into the relationships with a lot of colonial baggage. And, and because of that, um, we were seen as an honest broker in many cases. So to Jonathan's point, it makes sense for us to join where it makes sense for us to join. And it makes sense for us to maintain a certain degree of independence uh, where it makes sense as well. So I, I use the global partnership on AI as an example, where we are a leader uh, along with the French, it's headquartered in Montreal. And it's an area that's important to us, machine learning and AI is an important uh, part of who, where we are from an economic perspective. And we're respected uh, from, a, from a governance perspective in terms of putting something like this together. So it's, it's choosing those organizations which make the most sense where we can where we can leverage that advantage of you know we are next door to the united states but we're not we're not always linked at, at the hip with the united states and we should maintain that and people see it and then we have this relationship with europe from our history and now we know our history in in asia is one that we can really use to our advantage in terms of certainly in southeast asia certainly in india and we did have that from a goodwill perspective with China up until really in the last five to 10 years. So it's, it is, um, you know, I'm, I always use the example of, you know, being in Taiwan, it was very hard for me to get meetings with the people at the senior levels in Taiwan because the US was so important uh, and we were kind of inconsequential uh, from that perspective. We were consequential, but not in the same way. In Shanghai, I never had a problem meeting with senior officials at the, in the Shanghai municipal government much to the chagrin of my US colleague who had a very hard time meeting people. So there is those differences, Colin, that we need to be able to maintain and use to our advantage and we can use it to use, a, use it to our advantage. All right, my, my last question, and I'm gonna put this one to, to Frank and uh, Jean. I'll start with Jean is that, you know, the, it, politics is often about choice and this there's a smorgasbord of choices in this uh, Indo-Pacific uh, strategy. Uh, and we have various things already launched, the effort to get an FTA or a closer economic relationship with Indonesia, the, the Asian FTA. If you had to prioritize, which of course is what uh, both you and Frank had to do as premiers and as leaders, uh, what would you go after first? Is there some low hanging fruit that we should go after based on your knowledge of what's going on uh, out there? Jean, will you start? I definitely think there's low-hanging fruit in ASEAN, and we're negotiating a trade agreement with them now. But, and it's it, ASEAN. I mean, I think it was Jonathan that pointed out. I mean, the whole area is very diversified, and the, the level of development varies, and the uh, and the political and environment varies. But ASEAN is an area. There's more than 600 million people. A strong economic growth. Uh, as we look at the supply chain story, a, a lot of eyes will be on, on ASEAN. Though one thing to keep in mind, China will remain in a situation of strength because of its development of its infrastructure, which is unparalleled in the world relative to other areas. So let's be you know, reasonable about what we can accomplish in a short period of time. I just finished by saying you know, something that sounds obvious, but it's, it's always true. It's about engagement. We have to be engaged. And Colin, I think one of the challenges of the government of Canada, especially in regards to China, is how do you work with public opinion that is really soured on China? It is really, really soured on China and, and all over the world, but more in Canada than elsewhere. So you, you, the government is going to have to find the, the wherewithal 
to be able to rise above that uh, unpopularity, that sentiment, to engage in a, in a constructive relationship with China. That, that'll be a big political challenge in the short term. Frank, I'll give you the last word. As you know, for strategies to endure, we need to have some early successes, especially for government in its later days. And you want this strategy to endure in a transition of government, as we saw with our trade agreements with the United States. Yeah, <clears throat> absolutely. And I, I, I love the, 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 the idea here that we need to involve premiers, opposition parties, to the extent that we can make this uh, all of Canada. Um, it, it's much more sustainable with the United States. That is exactly what we have. So, but you've asked the specific question, so I'll give a specific answer. I think on this one, we need to be nakedly opportunistic. And, um, and even though we, we need to target Indo-PAC as a region, uh, my view is that India is the prize. Um, that we have a chance to, uh, uh, to enter into an early progress trade agreement with India, eventually leading towards an economic partnership agreement. Uh, I think just because of the population and the growth in, uh, in uh, that economy, that, that would be the biggest prize. I'd love to see us uh, tackle uh, as a second order uh, target some, a place like Indonesia, with large population base, et cetera. But uh, if, if you had to make me choose one, I would say India. Okay, thank you. Now my last question is, which uh, you're all familiar with, and I'll start with you, Stuart. What are you reading or streaming these days? Oh, I knew you would uh, you would ask me that. I, I forgot to check my, I'm reading a really good book right now. Um, I think it's called Commanders, and it's the, 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 it's, um, it's the tension between the pol political group and the military group and using examples in history, such as what happened in, uh, in Vietnam with the French, uh, what happened in Algeria. Uh, it's, it's really quite a fascinating This is Lawrence book. Friedman's book, I think, Command. That's right, Lawrence Friedman, that's right, Command. That's it, not Commander's Command. That's right, it's a very Perfect. interesting book. Excellent, Jonathan, what are you reading or streaming these days? Well, frankly, uh, even though we're focused on the Indo-Pacific, I've been quite occupied trying to uh, deepen my understanding both historically and currently on Russia, Ukraine, and the dynamics of uh, Central Europe. If you want to talk about competing empires, you've got another uh, battle for hearts, minds, and uh, and dominance of economic and, and social systems going on. I'm not going to single out uh, any particular author, but there is a wealth of analysis behind the headlines that's coming out uh, from European, American, and even uh, Russian uh, translated and uh, related sources. So that's been quite dominant in, in my time. And we didn't talk about this, but uh, when you connect the Indo-Pacific, not only with the Arctic, but with the broader region, one does have to factor in the Russian uh, dimension, uh, because whether they succeed in earning friends and influencing people, they are a continuously disruptive uh, power uh, that also impacts prospects for the region we've been talking about. All right, well, I will give you, I will give you a title. Orlando Figgis' new book on Russia is very much along the lines of what you're talking, but I'll now turn to Jean. What are you reading or streaming these days? Colin, I came prepared. <laughs> <laughs> you're no stranger to these podcasts. No, and, then, and there's a book out. Uh, it's a bestseller right now. The Indo-Pacific is the title. Actually, it's a collective, of, and, the, and the subtitle is New Strategies for Canadian Engagement with a Critical Region. Edited by Fenn Osler Hampson, Goldie Hyder, Tina Park. And, uh, and I actually uh, had the opportunity and the privilege to be invited to contribute on the Asian chapter, ASEAN chapter, with uh, Wayne Farmer and, and the C.D. Howe Institute. And this was put out just before the new government strategy. And it's a good read and a fun read, actually. It's uh, easy to, to go through. I highly recommend it. It's a bestseller, and I will be happy to sign whatever copies are sent to me. <laughs> Excellent, Jean. And I will underline, Thank you. we have a future podcast coming up with Ian Burney, who wrote the chapter on Japan. So yes. Uh, yes. So, all right. Now, Frank, uh, I finished with you. What are you reading or streaming these days? Well, to, to go to sleep at night, uh, to, to put me to sleep, I've got a John Beecham on the way on Jefferson. Um, but for fun, 
and I mean, uh, it really is an entertaining book. Uh, Hillary Clinton has collaborated with Louise Penny and, uh, and, and done a, uh, a work of fiction called um, State of Terror. And it is really uh, a, a fun book to read. Yes, you know, I think I did read it. And actually I watched, Marina and I watched, they put Louise Penny to, uh, it's either on Apple or on Netflix. Uh, one of her first books and yes uh, three it, pines or, or yeah the three pines like, it's, yeah. on prime. It's, on it's on prime it's on prime yeah and you know and, and she's and, a quebecer isn't she jean she's from the eastern townships in quebec where i am from and yeah. uh and it, this it's an extraordinary i saw the two first episodes highly recommend it and uh, everyone everyone will love it i won't tell you who killed uh cc <laughs> the butier but no no exactly this is all right well, listen, thank you so much for this. And uh, Jonathan and I were at a reception last night and a very senior government official came up and said he listens to this podcast. So oh. we are reaching the audience we want. <laughs> and with you more as talent, I mentioned this was doing it. I know that we'll be continuing to listen to even if they're doing their exercises as they listen. That's fine with us. Well, look, thank you so much, gentlemen. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Global Exchange. We were joined today by the Honorable Jean Charest, Stuart Beck, Jonathan Freed, and the Honorable Frank McKenna. You can find the Canadian Global Affairs Institute on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn, and the CJI Network on iTunes and Google Play. The Global Exchange is brought to you by our team at CJAI, and my thanks go out to our producer, as always, Charlotte Duval-Antoine, and to Drew Phillips for providing our music. I'm Colin Robertson. Thanks for joining us today on the Global Exchange. <laughs>